This morning, as we get going here, uh, I want to ask you a series of questions. A series of questions I actually got from this book I read this week, Wholeheartedness. This is a guy who I am uh, studying under next semester. He teaches up at Western, and so um, for my next leg, actually my last leg of uh, research, um, and so it's, the book's called Wholeheartedness. It's really good. You might be interested. I'll leave it here because Paul's heart's messed up, so we'll... I'm picking on people today. Poor Dan and now Paul. A series of questions that really struck me as I was, uh, as I was reading that book. And so I, I wanted to pose it to you as we enter into our study of Hebrews chapter 3 today. First is this. I am always doing more than one thing. And I don't feel like the one thing that I do, I do very well. Anybody ever feel that way? I'm always behind, always late. There is always one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, and yet one more thing I have to rush off and go do. Anyone ever feel that way? Hours go by. Maybe even, I I was even thinking about this, maybe days go by where I am busy about doing a task that is really important and needs to get done. But when it's done, I'm not sure what I did or why it mattered. (laughs) Maybe put it this way. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, what did I do yesterday? I feel like I should remember that. Like, I just feel like as a basic course of human life, I should remember what I did yesterday. And yet our lives are so busy and harried and, you know, we're always off to the next thing that sometimes I forget the thing I just accomplished. Why was it so important in the first place? This is a divided life. This is the modern life. I think all of us fit in there at least a little bit. In fact, you might call it that. We would maybe, maybe ask the question just for a moment, is that the good life? And since you happen to be in church, is that the life God wants you to live? This is very much a divided life, a life that is always going to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and we're sort of pulled in multiple directions. Nothing is all headed in the same direction. Nothing all focuses my purpose and moves me forward. It's, 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 it's divided. It's divided. And I've been asking myself uh, why that is. Like, what's the root of that? Because I think the root of this issue is, is in the very question we've been tackling over the past several weeks, and that is, we are not sure Jesus is enough. You think to, to yourself, Isn't as, even as I say that, I can hear your wheels, I can hear them turning. And you're saying, Jordan, that's not why I'm so busy. Well, you're wrong. How much, how much do you guys love me, right? I mean, just... No, I mean, I, I really want to prove to you, I think that that is the root. I really think that's the root of it. I think the root of it is that we are not sure that Jesus is enough. We live this kind of rushed life because we do not believe that we are enough or we do not believe that the moment we are in is enough. We believe that we are not enough. And so to sort of like, just sort of air my own dirty laundry... Uh, I have this inner critic at the back of my mind that is always saying, why are you not accomplishing more? Why are you not doing more? The stack of books on my desk isn't 
is because I am not smart enough and I must become smart. Like there's just this, this push that I am not good enough. And I don't really think that if I become better, God will love me more. But I really think if I become better, God might love me more. And others might love me more too. I think others on the other side, people that I, I notice in conversations that I've had and arguments I've had uh, with, with some people, is that the moment we're in is not enough. And so we're constantly looking for the next experience, the next moment, the next uh, selfie. Better than the last. But what, what does that say about us? And what does that say about our belief in God? Because what does it say about God if everything about our life says, I am not enough, and the moment you have given me is not enough? Doesn't it tell us that God is not enough? And what he has made is not enough. Heavy thoughts for a Sunday morning, right? If you could find wholeness in anything, you would never need another thing, right? If you could find wholeness in, uh, in an activity or an event or a hobby, you would never need to do it again. You would never need to find another one, right? You would be whole. If you could find wholeness in another person, you would never doubt the person you're sitting next to this morning, for those of you sitting next to people. But those of us who have been married have had lots of doubts, haven't we? That's partially a joke and partially true. <laughs> we, we do that, right? We've all been discontent. If we could find wholeness in a thing or an experience or a person, then we would be whole, and yet none of us are whole. We're constantly searching, aren't we? Constantly looking for something more. And my message to you today, in fact, the message of Hebrews, indeed, the message of the whole of Scripture is this. You will never find rest until you find rest in God. And for those of you here today, whether you call yourself a Christian or you call yourself an atheist, I would say to you this, your rest is in God. The thing you search for is God. You don't need to be more. You don't need more. You need God. Because Jesus is enough. And yet, at the same time as I give this good word, there is a direr Warning, I did say that right. It is a dire-er warning. A few weeks ago, Hebrews gave us a dire warning. Just one line, one little old line that said, hey, listen, Jesus is enough, don't forget. Here this morning, we get an expanded, because Hebrews functions, especially in the early chapters, kind of like a spiral. It's a letter that spirals up, and it begins with a word about God, and then it moves into a warning. And then it expands, and it gives us more of God's glory. And then it gives us another warning, saying, don't forget what I just said, and it expands it, and it makes it more intense. And that's where we are today. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. If you did not bring a Bible, fret not. Do not panic. We have you covered. Grab one just like this in the pew in front of you and turn to page 1002. I'm going to start here. This is, in fact, not, not the beginning of the text, but rather the heart of the text, the middle of the text. 
And I want to get there first so we can hold on to it as we see the illustration for this text, for this principle that comes before and then comes after. So this is Hebrews chapter 3, page 1002, second column, if you're looking at the same Bible I am. Verse 12 says this, Take care, brothers, and this is brothers and sisters, generic brothers, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence, firm to the end. You see that warning there. It's an implicit warning. And, and we see this kind of run throughout this, this letter, this letter to the Hebrews. And you'll notice, for those of you who have been with us all year, we've been uh, focusing on God first. And we're now at this God first supremacy part. But we began the year with Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy gave us the same kind of material, remember? It gave us blessings and curses. It said, hey, look at how faithful God has been to you. Look at all that God has done for you. And now be wary of walking away from a God who has loved you so much. That's what's going on here. In fact, my language nerds, where are you at? I saw Kayla. I was told to add you. And I have now officially, everyone can bear witness, you have been added. <laughs> this phrase in your Bible, when you see it here, this, this word take care, this is called an imperative. Um, for those of you who are not word nerds, that means the Bible is yelling at you. It isn't your mom saying, listen, honey, take care, tie your shoes, lest you fall on your face. <laughs> this is a mother standing in my kitchen, looking at a one-and-a-half-year-old standing on the table, saying, get down! <laughs> lest you bust your face open and we take you to the hospital, right? And there's a big difference, isn't there? One is a warning, and the other is a warning! Some of you might have been in church for a, long, uh, for, for a long time before and you kind of wandered away and you've come back and you've been like, you know, that maybe this sounds more like that fire and brimstone stuff. It's more angry God stuff. It's not. It's a warning of concern. When Esri stands on the table, which she does with some frequency, and Laura yells at her, it isn't that she is angry, although there is some anger that lies there, right? I mean, there is some, like, why aren't you listening to me anger? But there's also overriding all of that concern, and at the root of both the anger and the concern is what? Parents, love. Love. God loves you so much, he warns you, don't forget. Take care. In fact, take care is probably bad Bad way of translating. There's probably some way to do it more intensely. Look out! That's, my, that's what we're going to do. All right, so this kind of summarizes the section. So now, but let, let's, let's, now that you kind of see where it's all headed, you see the heart of it, you see the root of it, I want you to notice two illustrations the author gives us. Two illustrations kind of drive that point home. And the first illustration we find actually above in verses 7 through 11. So if you'd look back at your Bibles... This is actually a quote from Psalm 95. You should have heard it this morning as we, we entered our call to worship. 
He says, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I, provo- I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, and as I have sworn in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Now, um, for those of you uh, who have not been here for the whole time that we've been, we've been going through this, this might not ring a bell to you. And so I'm going to summarize in a nutshell as quickly as I can about 28 chapters of the Bible, which is a lot to do. But you'll remember, some of you anyway, that Israel was captured in Egypt. They were slaves there. God freed them by his mighty right hand. Ten plagues he brought down and he crushed Egypt, which was the greatest. It was the America or the Russia or the China or whatever nation happens to be greater right now. Uh, crushed the greatest and most strong military in the whole world. He, he downs them all and he leads them out into the wilderness, through the wilderness. And there he gives them this covenant. And he says a part of this covenant is this blessed land, this promised land. Long ago in a promised land far, far away, God had good news for his people. And he draws them through by all of these miracles and he brings them to the the Jordan River right here to cross over and to take the promised land. But when they get there, they look in and they see giants. They see trouble. They see trial and their hearts get hardened. The doubt sets in and they begin to wonder, is God really going to take us through? Can God really get me through this trial? Can he really get me through this hard time? Can he really save us? And as they they wait, God's anger is provoked. And it says his wrath is poured out on them. And again, we might go back to this and just just say, oh boy, there's that angry God again of the Old Testament. No. Put yourself in God's shoes for just a second. And ask the question, how could Israel doubt them? How could Israel doubt the God who brought them out of Egypt? How could he doubt the God who had provided for them every step of the way? The fact that they were standing there in that moment was a grace from God. How could they doubt God who had kept every single promise he gave them? How could they doubt? And yet they did. And because of this, God punishes them. God punishes them. He says to them, you will not enter into my rest. And so he lays waste to them with the most fierce punishment that could be ever bestowed aside from hell onto a human being, 40 years of camping. (laughs) Next time somebody ask you if you want to go camping with them, ask them, why do you hate me? What did I do to you? Children, say to your parents, what have we done? That's almost a joke. Almost a joke. So much truth there, though, too. <laughs> so God, God sends them back into the wilderness for 40 years. They don't enter the period of rest. Remember, the promised land is this land that's flowing with pizza and cookie bars. It's goodness all the way down. And yet, because of their doubt, they don't get the rest. There's a warning there, isn't there? There's a warning there for the people of God. That if we allow doubt to set into our hearts, 
we will wander away from God. And if we wander away from God, our, our very souls are in danger. I know we don't think about that very much today. I know that uh, most of us, if we're afraid of anything, it's afraid of like jobs or health issues. High school. There's a lot to worry about in high school. Very good. Lots to worry about all over the place. But your soul, your soul is the most valuable thing you have. Your eternal state is the most valuable thing you have. And you ought to, I ought to, we all ought to, invest as much as we possibly can in that which lasts forever. Because high school is only four years. Four years of misery, four years of heartache, four years of... It's like, it's like 40 years of camping crammed into four. But I promise you it will end. Eternity doesn't. And we as the people of God need to be the people who are most concerned with our souls. And that's the warning that we're given here. So then if we move into the center of the text, look again at verse 13. So take care. Look out! Brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now this is not a list. Right? This is not a list. This isn't saying don't have... Don't be evil. Don't have an unbelieving heart. Uh, don't walk away from God. Although if you're planning evil, don't do it. Like I'm not, those are all things you shouldn't have. But this is more like a progression, a stacking. We begin, in fact, it actually more literally would be rendered something like a heart of, of an evil heart of unbelief. Like there's a sense in which there is this, there's this evil heart in us that is drawn toward doubt. And that drawing toward doubt begins to infect us in such a way that we begin to discount God. Wonder if God is going to, wonder if Jesus is enough. That is the question that we ask, right? And as we begin to wonder that, and as we entertain that, that doubt, as we entertain those thoughts, they will take root and we will fall away. And our souls will enter into great jeopardy. Now in the past several years, I've noticed that there is... Um, Doubt seems to be like a good thing. People talk about it like it's a positive thing. And I think that the problem that sits there is that we have, um, we've confused doubt with humility. Those are two different things. You understand that? Like when somebody praises doubt, I think what they're praising is humility. Because you can put yourself in other people's shoes. In fact, you need to. Hear me. You need to. I've heard people say things like, you know, this old adage about um, counterfeiters looking at the real thing and studying the real thing so that they can know the fake thing. It's, it's an old wise tale. It's nonsense. You need to be able to put your, shoe, your feet in another person's shoes and ask the question, why do you think the way that you think? That's a, that's a state of humility. When we bracket and set aside our own thoughts and our own priorities so that I can understand somebody else's perspective, that is not doubt, that's humility. That's asking the question. I can do that without doubting my own perspective. I can ask the, the atheist, why don't you believe in God? And the atheist might say to me, man, I've suffered, I've gone through all this, how could a loving God? I can understand that. I can put myself in that perspective and see that. And in all humility, say, man, I can understand why you might wonder that. And yet my faith is intact and I can bring my faith to bear to that problem. Death is not the answer. Your trials are not the answer. All of those things have an answer and they're found in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ who can heal our brokenness, right? Just as an example. There's a doubt that, or a difference then between doubt and humility. I call you all to humility. I call none of you to doubt. 
Doubt is a sin. Think of Peter walking on the water with Jesus, right? And the, the waters come up and they boil and they bubble and they make a lot of noise and he gets scared and starts to sink and Jesus grabs his hand and says, hey, I'm really proud of you for doubting. No. He says, where's your faith? I was standing out here the whole time. I was fine. Why are you doubting? Right? That doubt is, is in James is, is like somebody, a person who doubts is somebody who shouldn't be trusted because that person is like the one who is on the waves. They're blown this way and that. Now you might say to yourself, well then you're telling me like I have to deny part of my intellectual honesty. No, I'm not. I'm saying you don't need to entertain those thoughts. I say to you every week, go forth and do no wrong. How many of you this week are planning to go forth and do no wrong? Oh my gosh, you are a bunch of you. You all, when we do, we do an altar call, it's a thing called an altar call, where you come down front and you confess your sins. Some of you all need, every hand in this place should go up. No matter how terrible a person you are, at least lie to us. We're all planning to go out and to do no wrong. Yes? Yes. How many of us are actually going to accomplish that? That's a little more, that's a little more question. I saw your hand, Merrick. Don't think I didn't. <laughs> he hides in the back and thinks I don't see. I see all. <laughs> I understand temptations come. I feel them all the time, right? Jesus, we, we talked about that last, everything you experience as a temptation, Jesus experienced In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says what? Father, if it's your will, take this cup. If it's your will. We experience the temptation. It is up to us to say to the temptation, no, that's not for me. My faith is placed on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There's nothing else that can be trusted. That is what the scriptures are calling us to. In those moments of temptation and of doubt, to set that aside. Now, uh, there's a really interesting story I followed for, for some time. I, can't, I feel like I, maybe I talked about it here. Forgive me if I did. But there was this guy, and he was a minister. And he went to, this is kind of one of the, one of the articles. I don't need to look it up or anything. But it's just really interesting to me. This guy was a minister, and he decided that he was going to spend a year as an, as an atheist. And it was kind of a blog gimmick. Right? And I don't know if he wrote a book or something, maybe, I don't know. But anyway, after... Somebody just make like a noise? Did I hear that? Connor? So we'll have a talk about humility uh, later with him. But, uh, but yeah, pretty much that. That's, that's... He went a year uh, without, without living the Christian life. And shock of all shocks... After surrounding himself with all of the atheist stuff that one might surround oneself with, at the end of the year, he says, oh, I'm an atheist now. Well, of course you are. It's not like Christianity is is easy. It's not like we're walking the easy road. I remember Jesus saying, uh, Jesus saying, there's a broad road. That many people find, and there's a narrow road that leads to life. Like, it's not surprising to me. Why? What happened? Well, when you surround yourself with people who do things, you tend to what? People in high school do those things, right? And other people in high school. There's more than one high schooler. She's just mouthier than you guys. And I like it. I like it. It's good. 
I lost track of what I was saying. <laughs> oh, right, yes. So back to the text. Here we go. So what, what's the problem? The problem is the fact that we can't walk this Christian life alone. It's hard. If, you're, if your problem is um, that you want to uh, drink and go home with someone tonight, my suggestion is you don't go to the bar. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty easy, right? And so you surround yourself with people who don't do the things that you're... T- I mean, if you're tempted towards something, you don't surround yourself with the people that do those things. Rather, what are we told to do? In fact, this is a constant exhortation, which is the fancy word for do this, throughout the book of Hebrews. And it says this, but exhort, which is a, a word that means encourage, but with accountability. You understand that? Like, we encourage one another, but it's not me just patting, uh, uh, you know, Asi on the head and saying, you know, have a good week. Take care. Don't tie your shoes. Don't trip. We are saying, listen, you can live this life. Now, have you lived this life? <laughs> right? There's, there's encouragement with accountability. So, exhort one another every day. You notice that. Underline that in your Bibles if you haven't already. It isn't on Sunday. Which is why when you come out here, if you, if you happen to go out this exit and not this exit um, to the larger portion of the parking lot, and you'll pass this big metal board that says next steps, and there's four steps. It's imperfect. We're working on it. Um, but we really, we really are want to encourage you to try to take the next step. And you'll notice that step one is being here on Sunday morning. And I hope that you leave this place encouraged, uplifted, convicted, uh, the whole cluster of exhortation. Feeling good, but realizing you need to try harder, but realizing the grace is all found in God, but you really ought to try harder too. Like all that stuff, right? That it is to be a Christian. We want you to leave that. But if you think that's going to carry you through a week of trial and tribulation, it won't. So we need to encourage one another. And if you say to yourself, well, I haven't seen so-and-so in church for a while, or, boy, I don't, I don't know if so-and-so is doing okay, do not think that the elders are going to call on them or that Jordan is going to call them. Get off your butt and call on them. Give someone a call and say, hey, I, you know, I, I miss you. Because people think it's my job, and it is in some ways. But to hear from just somebody that sits next to them in church tells them they're loved by more than just the preacher or the elders. They're loved by the people. And that the, the, the platitudes that we use on a weekly basis that we're family actually become meaningful when we reach out to one another. That's why the next steps are, you know, small groups, Sunday school lessons, uh, uh, midweek Bible, prayer time, the women's Bible. I mean, there's so many opportunities for you to plug in to someone else. Please, you won't make it, you won't make it unless you plug in with someone else. Because standing firm is tough. It's tough even more so today than it ever has because, uh, and I think I don't need to go into detail on this because we all know it, because we all have so many, so many distractions in our lives. Uh, I haven't, oh, no, no, I do. A reward for Flip the Gun, which is a, a game that I wasted too much time this week on. Free chest is waiting for me. Cheers. Right? I mean, we, we, I mean, you see the nonsense? I mean, we, you know, there, there's so much distraction. We need to plug into one another. We need to uh, pay attention. We need to look out. 
as the author begins to, I'm, I'm not going to have time to read this entire text, but I want to get to that second part of the illustration, because we have the first part, which is uh, back from um, the days of, uh, of, of Moses and wandering in the wilderness, and then we kind of have that heart here, that's that section of instruction in 12 through 14, and then it moves on to kind of talk a little bit about Sabbath. You'll notice that, and look, we'll look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4, so it's just, it's on the other page if you're using the same Bible that I am, verses uh, 9 and 10. Of chapter 4. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. Then there is held out in front of us this word, a Sabbath. If you're new to church and you're like, what's that word mean? That's all right. Um, we got some in house jargon and, and kind of is a little bit of a learning curve. The word Sabbath just means rest, and it had to do with the last day of the week. The, the Jewish people were told to rest and remember their relationship to God, the covenant they had with God, the blessings of God. And there, that was translated into an entire year, a year of Sabbath rest. All of this is just to say what they did was rest regularly. It had a point. It had a fixed point. And what the author of Hebrews here is doing is he is saying, listen, there is still a greater Sabbath rest for you and me. That greater Sabbath rest is the coming of the kingdom of God. If we do not hold fast to what we have been given, we are in danger of losing our place in that Sabbath rest. That eternal rest where all of our works are laid bare, where we throw our crowns, that song we sang, crown, we are not really going to crown God, like as if any crown we could have would crown God. But there's this, this image in Revelation where all of these People are around the throne and they have these crowns and they take these crowns and they throw them at Jesus' feet because everything we do is for him. Everything we do is for him. And that rest you want a piece of. That rest you want to enter into. That rest where our bodies don't ache, where our minds don't ache, where our hearts don't ache. That rest where we experience the fullness and the wholeness of the grace of God. Where we can say with total, complete, honestly, I don't want anything more. Won't that be a rest? I don't want anything more. Not another bite, not another drink, not another drop, not another anything. I don't need anything. Because God's presence is enough. That is the rest that we are all striving toward. And that is the reason why the author of Hebrews says, don't let go of the confession that you have made. Do not let go of Jesus. For not only is he enough in this life, he is enough in the world that is to come. And you want a piece of that. And so what we do as people who who really want wholeness, who really want healing and have found that in Jesus, is we affix our eyes, and the author of Hebrews will get there later on, but the author says to, to look toward Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, and to, to follow him and to, to look toward that great day of rest to which we are all hoping, and yet we all also live in the moment. We live in the day. We live in the now. And we don't just have something in the future But there is something that we are given that even now can begin to mend our brokenness. And mostly we learn to mend our brokenness by recognizing how terrible we are and how terrible other people have been to us. And we begin to work through that junk. We begin to say, man, this is a place in my life 
where I just don't treat my wife well. And we practice that, we recognize this pattern. And, and most of that comes from kind of a mindfulness of living in that moment, saying, why am, I, why am I lashing out at someone I love? Why am I so hard to get along with at work? Why do I do these things? And we take a deep breath and you begin to think, what is it that is guiding? What is happening in my body and in my mind that leads me to lash out in that way, for instance? Leads me to be jealous, leads me to be greedy, leads me to be lustful. And when I give in to those temptations, leads me to be doubtful. And when I give in to those temptations saying, no, Jesus, is enough, I need to travel this, this path of temptation, this meandering, destroying path. Why is that? The author of Hebrews has a cure. It's a balm. How many of you have ever had a cut and put Neosporin? We have, uh, Esri has got, got a boo-boo, maybe a uh, boo-boo, man, I'm a parent. Whoa. Owie, whatever. Scratch on her knee like three months ago. Anytime she gets hurt now and we say, oh, she's crying. Are, are you hurt? Where are you hurt? Knee. Not your knee. You're bleeding from the forehead. But we found, we found this, this little thing as well. It's an interesting little, I want to explore, which was a psychologist. It's interesting to, to explore because we find that now even when she is not wounded, she wants a Band-Aid on her knee. Like, she's attached. We do that in life, don't we? You, you have a hard time, and so you attach uh, to pornography to find some peace and pleasure. You attach to food to find some peace and some pleasure. You attach to entertainment of some kind to find some... We, we do that. We attach, and we add these, like, balms to our... But they're balms that don't heal. The wound is still open. You can't cover it up with something like that. It doesn't heal anything. And you'll notice... You notice that when you put a balm on, it doesn't work right away, right? Neosporin like cuts, cuts down the time, but it still takes a few days. The balm that needs to be applied daily is the scriptures. It's not an old word, or not a new word, it's an old word. What's the scripture say? Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. Because nothing, nothing matters, but that everything's passing away. But that rest, your body is passing away, your house is passing away, your car, your job, your bank account, everything is passing away. But the rest that we receive in Jesus does not. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, piercing to the division of the joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Because what the Bible does is it rips us out of ourselves and puts us into the perspective of God. We begin to sort of say wow, that's what's wrong with me. I need God's healing to bring together the wholeness. So that's where I'd end it today. This morning I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to understand that Jesus is enough. That whatever brokenness, whatever dividedness you have in your life, Jesus is the answer. The scriptures will lead the way and the people of God will walk with you. We will walk with you because we're on the same path, right? It's a narrow road. We're walking two by two, but we're trying, right? And we will walk it with you day by day. If you do need someone to pray with, our elders will be off to the sides here so you know we're not keeping track and marking down who comes down front or anything. We just, 
We want to be available to pray over you, to play, pray with you, to walk with you. If you don't know Jesus, now's a great opportunity to meet with him, to learn to walk with him. We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this last song.